I wish I'd kept the nose of my ancestors. These are the words of supermodel Bella Hadid, reflecting on the rhinoplasty she had done at 14 years old. Bella's father is a Palestinian-Jordanian immigrant who fled to Syria during the war before settling in the United States to raise his family. Bella's lineage represents a narrative not uncommon to immigrant families. It's one of culture and pride, of war and oppression, and of grappling with your heritage in a country designed for homogeneity. Today, we'll be talking about one of the most insidious manifestations of this. How has a uniquely Western culture of conforming affected our relationships to our own bodies? What ties to ancestry and definitions of beauty have been stolen from us? In what ways do we grapple with this? And to what lengths do we go to change our bodies to conform? Our first guest is Ruby Raven, a third-year sociology student at UBC. Ruby, so much of today's episode centers around our relationship with our faces and our bodies. Tell me, are there any features of yours that you have had a love-hate relationship with growing up? I would say that over the course of my life, my relationship to my nose has changed. Um, I'm Jewish, so there's definitely a lot of discourse about Jewish noses, especially in the Jewish community. And uh, I was always really aware of the idea of the Jewish nose, but I never paid that much attention to it on my own face. And then when I got to my teenage years and my nose had sort of developed, um, I started to notice, okay, I definitely have an interesting nose, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. Um, And then by the time I got to sort of the end of high school, I really was like, oh, I have this very memorable nose. It's very different. And it's, it's sort of got a, it's got a sense of humor to it. You know what I mean? Like my nose could tell a joke. Um, (laughs) It's, it look, it's curved on the left side from the left profile and it's flat on the right side. You know it so well. I really do. And it's got a little bump, which I love uh, because that bump is uh, a signifier of your Jewish heritage. So I find that bump to be really beautiful. But I definitely have had an an interesting, tumultuous relationship with my nose. I think that um, I really became acquainted with it um, over the pandemic. I had a lot of time on my hands, so I decided that I was going to become acquainted with my face. And um, I really, that's when I really noticed its curvatures, what it looked like from different sides, um, whose nose in my family that it looked like. And um, I discovered I could suck in my nose and make it look more um, like anglicized. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right word. but Eurocentric. Eurocentric, yeah. Um, And like the way that someone can suck in their stomach. And I feel like that is um, a really good comparison and uh, so sometimes in pictures, I'll suck it in when I know I'm on Zoom and I can like see my little my little face, I can I'll suck it in. And um, it's something that I wish I didn't feel the need to do. And when I did start to feel really insecure about my nose, I had to make a really intentional decision that I'm going to love my nose, that I'm going to be there for my nose if my nose ever needs me and (laughs) that I am going to be proud of it. And it's not something that, you know, every day when someone walks in, I'm like, oh my God, you guys, look at how cute my nose looks today. Um, But I mean, not that anyone would do that, (laughs) but 
But um, it's something that if I'm ever feeling down about it, I just have to sort of, it's like I give myself nose affirmations. Like, Ruby, you're making a decision to love this nose. This is the nose that you're going to go through the world with. It's the nose that helps you smell things. And I love to smell things. My mom always said I was a super smeller, (laughs) but that just could be mom goggles. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was such an intentional decision. And every day I make a decision to love my nose and... It's not always, you know, the most natural thing, but I'm so glad that I made that decision because I have so much energy to give. I'm a creative person. I want to, you know, put my energy into something, into the things that I make. And if energy is being sucked out of that and into negative noise about the way that I feel about Mm, my nose. Or self-comparison. Or self-comparison, then that is such a waste of useful energy that could go into making something. And so that's really why that decision was made. I just wanted to make sure that all my energy was being put into something joyful and not something that's going to suck the joy out. Something that struck me when you were talking is you said, I had a, I had a lot of time on my hands, April, and I got acquainted with my own nose. <laughs> and I'm picturing that scene. I don't know if you've ever seen A Star is Born with oh, Lady yeah, Gaga yeah, and yeah, Bradley yeah. Cooper. And she mm-hmm. traces the yes. outline of her nose. Yes, yes. And I remember watching that and it feeling like such a power move to yeah. me. And I also think about this phrase or a, a word in Spanish, perfilada, mm. which means profiled. And a lot of people in Mexico would like to have a Eurocentric nose Mm -hmm. that comes out a little bit and Mm -hmm. creates a profile for you. And then you have Mm -hmm. other people who don't want to have a profile at all, would love a much smaller, flatter, um, inconspicuous (laughs) nose. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. As women, it feels difficult to pinpoint exactly when we first looked in a mirror and decided okay, I don't like this about myself or that or Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And with social media, that all gets amplified because we find ourselves scrolling through visions of unattainable beauty. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself getting caught up in the self-comparison trap? And can you think of any recent instances where you notice yourself physically comparing yourself to others? I definitely censor myself from Instagram a lot, especially during the pandemic. I would, if I needed to like answer a message in my DMs, I would like literally cover any posts with my hands when I clicked the app and just go to the corner and click the DMs because I described scrolling through Instagram like eating an entire pizza to yourself. Like you just feel, or at least I just feel quite gross afterwards. If it's unfulfilling, there's this sort of ick feeling after scrolling through a long time. So I definitely try to censor myself, but that doesn't mean that I always do, that it's always successful. Sometimes you get pulled in. Um, I would definitely say that I've totally compared myself, my jaw, to like other people's jaw. I love a strong jaw. (laughs) And, um, And that was another thing in the pandemic that I discovered while you know, those many hours getting acquainted with my face. And it was never, ever something that I had thought about. Like, I know that was a thing with guys having a strong jaw, but there was just never any chatter of like women talking about their jaws or any way in any way. Mm. Um, But that was something that I got acquainted with. And I was like, this had never been an insecurity, never been something I paid any attention to. And now it was something that I was noticing on other people constantly, noticing on myself constantly. Mm, You're hyper aware of it all of a sudden. Yeah, and quite unpleasant. 
Ruby, I want to ask if you have any advice that you would give to yourself either in the middle of the pandemic when you were hating a feature that you hadn't hated before Mm -hmm. or to any other teenage girls who are struggling a little bit with how they move through the world and not having, not wanting to Mm -hmm. load the skin that they're in. I think for me, with having feelings about my nose, um, I took a lot of solace in the fact that, like, this is a nose of my people, and this is my grandmother's nose and my dad's nose, and my brother sort of has this nose that looks much different on his face, but he kind of has the same one. And there's a picture of my my non-Jewish grandmother, and um, I look so much like her. Actually, both sides of my nose are quite different. One is much flatter and one is curved. Mm. So the curved side is sort of like the Jewish side. And then the flat side is sort of like that 25% of me that isn't Jewish. And um, and from each angle, I look like either one of my grandmothers. Um, and I don't look very much like my parents. So it's really cool that I can look at my grandmothers and pull them into me. And that was something that I, once again, had to make a very conscious decision to love. And it's not like every day I'm like, oh, my God, you guys, I'm so happy about this Jewish nose. Like, I love it so much. But I make such a conscious effort to tell myself I love this nose. This is the nose that I've had my whole life. This is the nose that people love me for, that I love myself for. Um, And so that's really like the steps that I take to do that. And I would say, like, among Jews, there's sort of like this, uh, you know, if you have a Jewish nose, then it's maybe construed as an insult. But um, when I was interacting with Violet and I found out she was Jewish, I went, oh, my God, I thought you might be Jewish. And she said, oh, I know. Yeah, because of my Jewish nose. And I was kind of like, oh, oh, I hope she doesn't think that, like, (laughs) I was insulting her. And you told me that you felt like oh, that was such a lovely moment, like a person of a similar culture recognizing that and having that lif- different language mm. of like facial features. Here's something we h- share. Here's yeah. a shared ancestry. Exactly. And and it had literally never occurred to me that it could be that beautiful thing because I was introduced to it as a way that it was Jews were discriminated against and something that Uh, deviated us from like the Eurocentric facial structure. But I don't know, I think that sometimes the things that you're most insecure about can, if you make the choice, be turned into that superpower of lineage and being connected to your past. But because of the standards in our society, it's not something that comes easily And it's not something that we're taught to love and that we're taught to understand. So I would really just encourage people to focus on the love of their family as a way of interacting with that part of their body. Hi there, I'm April, and welcome back to Love in Public. You are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. We're leaping with reckless abandon into the past and landing crisscross applesauce on the colorful mat of your kindergarten classroom. 
This season's theme is show and tell. For the next few episodes, we'll be chatting with creatives from every walk of life about the art they make and the art that's made them. In the previous conversation, I was fascinated by Ruby's idea of energy as a finite resource, one that she has made a conscious decision to channel into creativity rather than into her insecurities. I was interested to see how other creators grapple with this. In what ways can art itself serve as a medium to process or challenge body insecurities? I'm here with Kia Hariati, my elementary school best friend and now a sociology student at the University of Indiana. We've known each other since we were in the third grade, but haven't seen each other in person for more than a decade. What you're about to hear is a personal essay that she wrote in 2020, titled The Ghosts of Mothers I'll Never Know, as read by Anna Manuel. Look it up. According to the Golden Ratio, Bella Hadid is the most beautiful woman in the world. She's beautiful now, there's no denying that. Surgeons made her that way. But she was beautiful too before she got onto the operating table. Most of all, her softly rounded nose, which is nearly unrecognizable now. A nose that served as a marker of her Palestinian heritage. A nose that must have existed on generations of Hadids before she and her sister went under the knife and set the beauty standard for years to come. Gia Tolentino coined the term Instagram face in 2019 to describe the disturbing indistinguishability between our generation's it girls' faces. Of course, Bella, but women like Kendall Jenner and Emily Ratajkowski too. They have faces made to sell. They have tiny upturned noses from their rhinoplasties, soft, full lips, and arched eyebrows from their Botox procedures, large, glinted, cat-like eyes from their canthoplasties. Their beauty is manufactured. Their beauty is soulless. Their beauty could only come from the age of semio-capitalism. Their faces do not come from their ancestors. They inherited their beauty from scientific calculations, Instagram algorithms, and Snapchat vanity filters. These women were not born, but instead made, Instagram-ready. And how can I blame these perfect, ethnically ambiguous, Instagram-faced women for giving themselves to the surgeons? Liberal capitalist feminism told us objectification was permissible. Even in capitalist feminism told us to line the pockets of our executive oppressors. It's empowering because we're doing it. No, I can't blame the Bella Hadids and the Kendall Jenners of our world. Not one bit, because I so badly want to be them too. I parade myself in front of the mirror daily, my little ritual of self-objectification, and I give myself up to the male gaze that exists within me, the part of my brain corroded and gone mad by my Generation Z upbringing, shaped by face tune and automatic blurring filters. I see myself with a surgeon's eyes, with a TikTok comment section's eyes, with a man's eye, and I despise what I see. I am rootless in this country. My only family is my parents and siblings. I don't look like anybody I know, and I don't look like what anybody I know wants to look like. And perhaps I hate myself, because I know so little about where I come from. My past was obscured by Dutch colonialism, Japanese imperial violence and rape, hushed family secrets, dusty colonial records, and a history that only exists in the minds of people long dead. I have no precious heirlooms, no long and storied documented ancestral lineage to reference. All I have is my face. Everything I've been taught to hate comes from mothers I will never know. My flat nose, my small eyes, my lopsided breasts, my thick waist. I am a woman in Java, in Sumatra, of the Batak generations ago. They live on in me, they are my specters. 
They haunt me in the mirror and find new life in my limbs. And now I know I cannot hate myself because hating myself means hating them. Now I know I cannot change myself because changing my face means losing my mother's. That was Anna Manuel reading an essay written by Kia Hariati titled The Ghosts of Mothers I'll Never Know. I invited Kia on the show to share some of her thoughts with us. Takia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. When I hear that piece read aloud, I get the same goosebumps that I got the very first time that I read it. There are a hundred bajillion things that I want to pull apart and analyze when it comes to this personal essay. But before I get into my own thoughts, I want to hear about yours. Tell me, where were you when you wrote this? I'm curious to hear about what was going on in your life and, and what was on your mind when you picked up the pen. Yeah, so I wrote this, um, I guess, January of 2021. Um, and this is sort of during the pandemic and like the throes of the pandemic. And I had been getting really into sort of like second wave feminist theory. I was reading a lot about um, these like critical approaches to beauty um, and to beauty standards um, and stuff that like, Uh, I had sort of, like, heard about vaguely, like, but um, I had never seen people, like, uh, attack, like, traditional beauty norms uh, so strongly. Um, And especially sort of, like, these these theorists um, who were often most active in the 70s, coupled with the way that the landscape is right now, Mm. um, with apps like tiktok and instagram i'm thinking about the instagram Um, baddie as you're talking exactly exactly yeah yeah and like things like bbls um and sort of the way that um i don't know like the the way that we especially now we've seen even like body types go in and out of favor um yeah you you mentioned the instagram baddie we had to sort of look in like the early 2010s and now like people like are changing their bodies um to acclimate to these new trends and you know like the sort of of the way that we see beauty playing out in the dynamics between like the patriarchy and between capitalism um and sort of like the medical industry and i was so i guess like frustrated um and with my own experiences as a woman um i felt compelled to write my essay i admire that that you can feel this visceral frustration and put it into words. I get frustrated and I just want to scream into a pillow. What I can't get over when it comes to this piece is how you are able to weave the personal, the academic, the political, but you do so in a way that feels intimate and approachable. There's this one part in particular that stuck with me the first time I read it. It's when you describe this ritual of self-objectification where you parade yourself in front of the mirror every day. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It's definitely one of those things where it's a trope that you see all the time. I think it was John Berger who wrote about it in Ways of Seeing, but um, we've always seen art of women looking at themselves in the mirror. We've always seen in movies, like you always have that scene of a girl like dressing herself, posing and things like that. Um, And I mean, I I find myself doing it all the time too. Especially when I was in high school, I would like get down to my underwear and I would like pull at my body and like, Mm. you know, like pull at like pockets of fat and be like, oh, if only I did this, if only I could do that. And I think what a lot of people sort of don't even realize is that actions like that don't exist in a vacuum. Like me at 15 years old, pulling my stomach fat, like in front of a mirror, like in the bathroom, um, wasn't because I want to do that because there were sort of these, like these, these dynamics of beauty standards I want to hold up to. Um, and 
all these images of women I had been exposed to, I guess, and like feeling like I wasn't enough. And I guess that's what I mean. Like humans don't exist in a vacuum. Um, right. We sort of are like the products of our of our environment and of our culture. Um, and unfortunately, what I say, like, you know, like a surgeon's eyes, a man's eyes, that's part of that. You wrote this essay years ago and something that came out recently in the news that I remember hearing about and thinking about your piece, it was an article in Vogue, I believe, where Bella Hadid made a statement about her rhinoplasty saying that, and I quote, she wishes that she had kept the nose of her ancestors. I wonder if you saw that headline when it was trending and how it made you feel. I felt really, really moved when I read that. Um, I found it really powerful and I thought it was incredibly brave of Bella Hadid, you know, somebody who has been in the limelight for so long. And I think one of those sort of like memes that goes around is her mom, Yolanda Hadid. I think they were in like Real Housewives. And it's unfortunate because you can sort of see it's, you know, for public consumption, the relationship between Bella Hadid and her mother. Um, And I think she mentions in the article that her mom was a huge reason why she got the rhinoplasty. Like she was pressured to get that from her parents. And I think like, you know, like um, it serves as a thing that happens as you mature and grow. And I think it like is an incredible like sign of growth and of bravery for Bella Hadid to, first of all, like, you know, go out and say that, yeah, like I did get a nose job. Um, And then for her to say, and I regret it. Um, And I hope it's like, you know, like a sign of a shift in the culture, Mm. I guess, so to speak. Mm. And I know you and I have spoken in the past about, how women's bodies are policed and there is no winning if you have extra fat that is a bad thing and then if you do something about it and get plastic surgery then that is a bad thing Mm. so to be someone like Bella Hadid who is in the limelight and who is constantly being taken apart for anything she does when her entire career revolves around her image I can't imagine what that must be like Takiya, something that I've known about you for years and years since the third or fourth grade is that you have this undeniable gift as a writer. In fact, I have this one memory of you and me in the fifth grade. I remember asking you what you wanted to be when you were older, and you said that you wanted to be a sociologist. I had to Google it because I had no idea what that was. And (laughs) when I searched it up, I remember thinking, oh, I'm surprised that she didn't say that she wanted to be a writer because it just felt like something that you were made to do. Have you always known that you were a natural writer? I guess the way that I've always thought of writing is, you know, it's just another way of understanding the world. Um, And I think me writing this essay was a part of that. Um, I sort of had these experiences and these observations that I was collecting in my mind. And, um, you know, people, people have therapy, people go to therapists, people have friends that they talk to to get their their thoughts out and I think writing is another form of that um and I think in some way like you know we are we're all we're all writers and we're all capable of being writers and we're all we all have that you know power in us um and I think that um you know journaling and things like that too um is something that a lot of people do um but yeah um I love that you say that that we're all writers I think it's (laughs) generous and and also inspiring. I want to segue into my favorite part of the show. As you know, the theme for the season is show and tell, and I thought it would be a sweet way to get to know the different creatives on the show and hear a little bit about what's shaped who they are as an artist. We ask our guests to bring in a physical object, a fact, a song lyric, a photograph, anything that speaks to them and their approach to the art that they make. 
Tell me, what have you brought for us today? Um, so my show and tell item is a little bit of a cop out. Uh, I chose my library card, especially because, you know, this, uh, this essay I wrote speaks so much to me as a child um, and the, chi- the, the little girl I once was. And going to the library was such a huge part of that and being able to read and be introduced to so many different ways of thinking, um, both both literary works and both and theorists too. Um, and, you know, it's, you, you have all these sorts of like worlds and these tomes of knowledge um, that you're given access to simply by being a citizen of um, whatever county you reside in, if you're in the United States. But, you know, everyone has access to a library. Um, and yeah, that's my, my show and tell item. Hmm. I remember you saying to me one time that every time you walk in the doors of your public library, you feel rich. Yeah, I, I definitely feel it. It feels like an incredible privilege to me um, in that, you know, you, you just looking at a bookshelf um, with a stack of books, like each book is like, you know, like years of an author's life, even if they, you know, wrote their um, their book like really fast. Like that's still like years of experience that like contribute to that work. Um, and it's like really moving to think about that mm, and, um, to and to think of like to hold it in your hands even. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, we have ebooks and stuff now, but um, there's something really special about, you know, being able to see like words and pages and like see how thick like books are even. Mm. Um, and think about, yeah, you know, these are all sentences that were meticulously crafted and like, like pondered over by a creator. And that's just really special to me. What a wonderful sentiment to end on. Thank you so much for making the time, Takia. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a quick break to play a song that is especially relevant to today's episode. This is Unpretty by TLC. to me just a little bit skinny why 
After chatting with Kia, I was curious to hear from someone with first-hand experience working in the plastic surgery industry. What types of people feel drawn to cosmetic procedures? How do Eurocentrism, ageism, and other Western ideals play into the decision to change something about your body? I had the chance to talk with Ben Rousseau, a UBC student who spent a summer interning at a plastic surgeon's office. Well, my, my function was pretty interesting because the surgeon who I worked for, uh, he is a phenomenal surgeon, just incredible. Um, so what he had me do is I kind of dealt with the, uh, the patient consult side of things. And so people would come in and I would ask them a few questions. Uh, most of the time they had to do with uh, skin cancer lesions, but uh, at the same time I also had to organize a lot of uh, uh, photos, a lot of files uh, having to do with people who were coming in for... Uh, um, surgeries having to uh, kind of deal with aesthetic problems that they cosmetic thought were surgeries? cosmetic surgeries. Yeah, it's funny. I worked there. I can't even recall the term, but uh, I, I worked a lot with that. And um, 
essentially it was it was mainly older people because either they have skin cancer or they are their their natural beauty is starting to fade for lack of a better uh, way of describing that. Um, and so that kind of sums a little bit about what I did that summer. It was also a lot of filing, a lot of uh, <laughs> busy work, taking out the garbages. Um, <laughs> but that seemed to be kind of the bulk of the work, uh, dealing with people, older people, um, who were coming in for any type of plastic surgery. And I remember you telling me that you felt this ethical dilemma working there because you don't necessarily you wouldn't get plastic surgery for yourself. No, I don't think I would, and I don't think I would recommend anybody in my own life to get it either. Uh, And so largely, uh, the reason I was wanting to work there, uh, it's a great experience to deal with people uh, in in a medical scene, because that's what I want to do. I want to be a doctor. Hopefully one day, we'll we'll see. But uh, it's interesting, because I'm not sure I love the idea of, of plastic surgery. I think it's great when let's say, for example, you have a a skin cancer lesion and you want to get rid of it and you want to cover it up. That's necessary. And we need plastic surgeons to deal with those kind of problems. Um, But at the same time, when you see a 21-year-old woman going in there and wanting to get breast, uh, uh, breast implantations or maybe reduce the amount of loose skin under their eye, uh, not under, just right beneath their eye. Um, it, it's a bit disheartening. Mm. And I found myself working there and enjoying it quite a lot. But whenever whenever I saw something like that, or maybe an older lady who, you know, husband is, is maybe there, but very not present, because um, maybe, you know, he doesn't find her sexy anymore. And mm. this is the way that she wants to solve that problem. And so there were a few times when I was um, kind of questioning myself, you know, uh, is this okay? Um, So that was kind of the moral dilemmas that I was facing. And as you're speaking now, I'm already starting to think about the intersection between this entire industry that is profiting off of insecurity and the socialization of gender. And most of these people that were coming in for cosmetic operations, I'm assuming, were women. How many men did you have come in? So I'd say, and this is obviously completely anecdotal, uh, but maybe one in 10 or so were men. Uh, And I did not see a single man uh, go into that office or even on on file, because I didn't always see the people that we were working with. Sometimes it was just organizing their photos. Uh, But it was always for functional purposes. Uh, For example, there was this one man and he came in and he, he couldn't see. And he, he couldn't see because he was blind. He couldn't see because his eyelids had grown so much that it was, it was covering them. Uh, and so naturally, you know, he wanted to get rid of some skin in his eyelids. Uh, and it was examples like those, uh, things that seemed uh, very necessary in order to have kind of a desirable quality of life. Um, whereas most women, it was uh, uh, breast implants. It was um, kind of reducing uh, maybe saggy breasts, saggy boobs, um, and lo- lots of loose skin. Getting rid of loose skin, uh, but not for functional purposes, for aesthetic purposes. Hmm. Skin, body, beauty. Do you feel like you walked away from this experience seeing any of those things differently? I think 
it made me, it helped me to realize that. Um, Emulate something that they never were to try exactly and it. match a beauty standard that will exist so temporarily, that is so fleeting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You look at beauty standards years and years ago, it's completely different from what they are now. Um, there's that art. Yeah, and, and the, uh, this idea of like Instagram face. You know, most, uh, most teenagers are days, most female teenagers are uh, today kind of look the same because they're trying to emulate this idea of, uh, of beauty that I think has been shaped by social media, by our culture, by an array of things. Uh, and so everybody's trying to look the, look the same, uh, but that's not true because no, nobody looks the same. My conversations with Ruby, Kia, and Ben today gave me insight into a realm that I don't think receives a lot of empathy or deeper understanding. What insidious beauty standards contribute to a person's decision to get plastic surgery? What cultural ties do we lose by changing the features of our ancestors? What temporary and false notions of beauty do we allow to govern our cultural identity, our energy, our capability to be loved and to be seen? These are questions that can't easily be answered, but a big, big thank you to the contributors of today's episode for challenging us to start trying. To keep up to date with all things love in public, give us a follow on Instagram at loveinpublicpod, and feel free to check out our previous episodes on Spotify, as well as our shiny new website, loveinpublicpod.com. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll see you next time. Ciao, ciao. This episode was produced by Moses Caliboso. Special thanks to our creative writer, Tessa Mock. All of the music that you heard on today's show was produced by Moses Caliboso and Ben Robinson. Emotions. Yeah.